sitting up here in the front. Sometimes I wonder if I'm going to get up here and turn around and everybody has gone out to a, uh, another class. Appreciate you being here, especially on a snowy afternoon in July. I mean November. Seems like it was just July, doesn't it? We are looking tonight at the first century city of Corinth. We're going to be turning to Acts chapter 18 in a few minutes and looking at Paul's journey or his uh, time there. So he spent 18 months there and we have less than 18 verses. Don't you wish preachers could be that succinct? If I told you tonight that we had a missionary coming who was going to speak and present his ministry, and he was going to be traveling uh, to plant a church in Siberia, what thoughts would come to your mind? Cold. How's he going to get there? All right. If I told you somebody was going to plant a church in Tampa, Florida, would that be different? A little bit. You want to sign up for the Tampa team, right? Now, don't answer this one out loud. If I told you someone's going to plant a church in downtown Las Vegas, what comes to your mind? Something a little different? Corinth was very much the Las Vegas of the New Testament world. However, so were several other cities in the Roman Empire. When you have a culture, the Greek culture, that worships a goddess of pleasure in almost every major city of the empire, you can expect to have a culture that is going to clash completely with a biblical ethic. The Jews found this to be true when they were scattered from Israel all across the Roman Empire, everywhere they went. The impact of Greek fleshliness and philosophy was everywhere. You are familiar, I trust, with the map of the Mediterranean Sea. And, uh, of course, Israel is over here on the east. Now, the northern part of Israel is roughly parallel in latitude with Myrtle Beach. Some of you have been there. I haven't. So, as you come across the Mediterranean, you can kind of guess what kind of climate we're going to have. It's, It's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. And then you have Greece, which is not a whole lot farther north. It's a little bit farther north of Israel. This is the mainland. I'm sorry, that's Italy. That's the boot. (laughs) Over here is Greece. One of those pieces that sticks out there. (laughs) This is the Aegean Sea. And you'll notice there's a lot of islands. There's a lot of peninsulas. There's a lot of inlets. There's a lot of harbors. For the last, more than the last 3,000 years, the Greek people have been some of the world's foremost shipbuilders 
and sailors. In the ancient world, the people of the Mediterranean Ocean were trading with the Orient. We think of them as isolated pockets of people, remote, nothing going on. People didn't know what was going on in other parts of the world. In fact, it, that's not true. The Greek people, uh, the people of the city of Corinth, which is right here, we're going to look at it a little bit more on a larger map, they had settled um, a colony in Sicily. They had settled colonies on the north coast of Africa. They had settled colonies over here in Turkey. Each of the city-states had established colonies in other places to enhance their trade, to have more seaports, to have more influence, more power, to gain more wealth from around the area. If we focus in a little bit more on Greece, this is the mainland of Greece. The upper part is called Macedonia, which includes the part down here where Athens is. And then connected by a small land bridge is the Peloponnese, the peninsula on which Corinth was located. The city of Sparta was down here in Greek, back in the Greek Empire, and the city of Athens was over here. And if you know anything about Greek history, uh, they were often at war with one another. The city of Corinth was right here on this land bridge. So if Sparta wanted to go overland to attack Athens, guess where they had to go past? They had to go past Corinth. If the Athenians wanted to attack Sparta overland, they had to march past Corinth. So at various times in history, the Corinthian army was allied with various cities, depending on who needed help and who they had a grudge against at the moment. The Corinthian army of pre-biblical or pre-New Testament times was famous uh, for its fighting skills. Not only that, the city of Corinth being on uh, this small bridge and having water on both sides had not one navy but two. If you can be attacked from water by two sides, you don't split one navy, you have two navies. Navies which uh, were well known for their uh, fighting skills and sailing capabilities. So here you have a close-up, and you see this land bridge that Corinth, the city of Corinth controlled. That land bridge is four miles wide. It goes over, there's a hill on that land bridge that's, I don't know, 100 or so feet high. And that's, that four miles of land is all that separates those two bodies of water. Somewhere in the ancient world, in the time of the Greeks, sailing ships that were coming around Greece and headed east and that were coming from the east and headed west figured out that it was much safer than sailing through these waters. It was much safer to sail here, unload your ship, and transfer it to a ship on the other side of the isthmus, carrying your cargo for four miles. I hear they're looking for work. Anybody want? <laughs> they, this was such an important trade became such an important naval trade route that they actually built a stone road, 500 BC, and they would use rollers and they would, the small ships, they would actually roll the entire ship over the hill four miles and put it in the water on the other side. That saved time and it was safer than sailing around the peninsula. That's hard to imagine. But you've read of some of Paul's adventures in sailing on the Mediterranean. He was shipwrecked three times. That might give you a clue as to why they thought it was safer to carry the freight over the land. 
So the city of Corinth, for hundreds of years before Paul, was an incredibly important trade city. It controlled the land routes between the parts of Greece, and it controlled the water routes between the Aegean and the western part of the sea. They were a, an incredibly important commercial city. About 150 years before Christ, the city and the area had been conquered by Rome, but some of these Greek city-states, um, Greek cities, rebelled against Rome. So in about 150, shortly after 150 B.C., the Roman army came in and besieged uh, Corinth, fought in the area and conquered, and finally conquered Corinth, a marvelous city with incredible architecture, and they burned the city, they murdered all the men, they sold all of the women and all of the children into slavery, and they destroyed almost all of the ancient Greek city. One of the, some of the uh, major architecture of the ancient world was in Corinth. Then, about a hundred years goes by, and a man named Julius Caesar becomes the Roman emperor, and he realized the importance of this location for trade, for commerce, and for political control. And so he rebuilds the city as the provincial capital of the Roman province of that lower part of Greece. So now Corinth is the capital of a region. He resettles it with retired Roman soldiers and other Roman citizens. Greek people move back in, Jewish people move in. Anyone that wants to make a buck in the trades or in the maritime trades or in some other venture, it's a great place to open a business and start up. By the time of Paul, it was probably a city of 50,000 people or more. That reminds me of another city I heard of in Northeast Ohio named Menor. Isn't Mentor about 50,000 people? Pastor Mike, is that about right? About the size of Mentor. Uh, not spread out as far, but similar in size to the city of Mentor. Now, any of you that have heard anything over history about a port city where naval vessels and merchant vessels often stop, know that many of those cities gain a reputation for all kinds of, uh, let's just say, not family-oriented activity. Corinth became that kind of a city. You'll notice up in the background there's a very high mountain called the Acrocorinth, the Acropolis, the upper city. Uh, several of the Greek cities had an upper city. That was the, a fortress. And on the top of that city there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, which had been destroyed at one time, but was still hiring uh, paying 1,000 prostitutes to work the streets of Corinth and to bring funds in to the temple for the worship of Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of fertility. So we don't need to go into any more detail. That's the nature of uh, that part of the city. The city was not located right on the shore, on the beach. It was located inland a little ways because there was a fountain there. There was so much water coming off of the hill and such a beautiful spring coming out of the ground that they built public fountains and great pools, a pool uh, that would swallow up this entire facility uh, there in town where you could come and get your drinking water and other things. It was a beautiful location. It was an important location. It was a very busy location. It was busy commercially. It was important uh, politically, and it was important militarily. 
it was a city of idolatry. Not only was there a temple to Aphrodites, the goddess of fertility, there was a temple to Apollos, the Greek god. In fact, um, over on the right-hand side, you see some columns standing. That is about all that is left of the ancient Greek city. The rest of these ruins are Roman ruins. This is the main road coming into town. It was 24 feet wide with a 9-foot sidewalk on each side. And along the side were columns, and all of these were little businesses along the side. And in uh, the Roman ruins, they counted 33 different wine stores along the street. 33 wine stores along the street of one city. Does that give you a clue as to uh, uh, what the nature of the city was like? This temple, the ruins, the remains, are all that is left of the ancient temple of Apollos. These ruins were standing there when Paul visited the city. They probably looked just like this. That's all that was left. Those ruins were 700 years old when Paul stood there. Each one of those columns is one solid rock. There were 36 or 38 of them holding up the roof of the temple of Apollo. The worship of Apollo was still going on. They had rebuilt several shrines to Apollo in the Roman city. There were gods to the goddess Asclepius, which is the goddess of healing. We know of it as a snake on a pole, worshipped throughout the Greek world. Asclepius is... A daughter was the goddess Hygiene, also had to do with healing. Does that ring a bell? There were other gods and goddesses. There was a temple for the emperor to be worshipped there, and so on. It was a godless, idolatrous place, but it was an important commercial center. The Apostle Paul knew that it was important, the Apostle Paul knew that it was filled with every manifestation of the flesh. He knew the reputation of the city. There were three things that were indicative at that time. You remember Paul said to Titus that Cretans were liars and gluttons? It was known throughout the Roman Empire that Corinthians were drunkards. In the plays... Uh, on the Greek theater, if someone portrayed a Corinthian person, he was almost always drunk. And then there was a verb in the Greek language to Corinthianize, which meant to live a life of debauchery and flesh. These were the things that were on Paul's mind as he would have traveled from Athens to Corinth. Athens is an, only 40 or 50 miles away. Whether he walked or whether he took a ship, we don't know. It was also a temple to the god Poseidon, the Greek ruler of the seas, also the god of earthquakes, which is ironic because the Roman city of Corinth was destroyed by an earthquake in the 300s A.D., rebuilt, destroyed again by another earthquake in the 800s A.D. I guess they made Poseidon mad. Or something. It's interesting that Poseidon was worshipped as the god of the sea by a people who were a seagoing people and depended upon the sea for their well-being and their wealth. It's also interesting to me that Poseidon, who was the god of the sea, was also the god of the earthquakes. I haven't quite figured that one out, but that's okay. 
the New Testament city of around 50,000 people. By the way, when that earthquake destroyed the city of Corinth around 800, 850 A.D., they estimate that it killed 45,000 people in the destruction of the city. This gives you some background. This gives you a little bit of an idea of where Paul was going, of what Paul might have been anticipating, of what he was expecting. Now, Paul was no stranger to Greek idolatry. He was no stranger to Roman idolatry. He was no stranger to all of the fleshly manifestations of the Greek uh, lifestyle throughout the Roman Empire. He had seen it in other places. But the city of Corinth was going to be an, a special challenge. And it's interesting, as we look into the book of Acts in the 18th chapter, uh, how he starts and what God eventually tells him about the city. So I turn to Acts chapter 18, and I read that after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. That's easy to read in two seconds. It's a little bit farther to walk. And there he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. We have historical confirmation of that from historians. In the year 59 AD, Claudius, the emperor, commanded that all Jews had to vacate the city of Rome because they were always squabbling among themselves over one named Christus. Evidently, the gospel had reached Rome, and there was a division among the Jews as to whether Christ was the Messiah or not, and it caused enough of a ruckus that it came to the attention of the emperor, and he had all of the Jews leave the city. Some of them must have come back at various times, but by and large, most of them had to leave. So he came to them, and verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And so these people were uh, in the trades, and Paul joined them having some experience as a tent maker. We still use the phrase tent making in church planting ministries. When someone has to work a job and support themselves in order to plant a church, which is becoming more and more common again in our day, uh, we call it tent making. Uh, tent making ministry means that someone is working to support their family while they plant a church. And a good many of the men that we have in Arch Ministries that work with us and fellowship with us are men who are tent makers. That's what Paul was doing here, and that's why we get this word. He is waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him. In verse 4, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. If you read through the epistle or through the uh, ministry of Paul in the New Testament, you will find this pattern. His strategy was to go first to the Jew in the synagogues or in a place of prayer at Philippi in Philippians uh, 16, uh, in Acts 16 at Philippi. Always to go to the Jew first. And he gave them the gospel. And some would believe, many would not. Most of the time there was a reaction, not good. And Paul would end up leaving, then leaving the synagogue and going and ministering the gospel to the Gentiles. In that, you can see that pattern over and over and over again. It's going to happen after Acts 18 as well. In many times that reaction was so violent that Paul suffered physically for it, and others suffered. And I'm sure you're familiar with that already going through those parts of the book of Acts. 
So he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath days, and he was trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Now, why would we find Greeks in the synagogue? We find Greeks in the synagogue because they have converted to Judaism. They are God-seekers. They are God-fearers. They have come in to the synagogues seeking to know more about the God of the Jews. It's very significant, although we don't notice it because it's an absence. It does not say that he was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks and Romans. In the Roman Empire, it was uh, the policy of Rome, when they conquered a people, those people could keep their religions, as long as they also added the Roman religions to their list. Well, the Jews had been conquered, but because they were an existing religion, they were allowed to continue. And early on in the New Testament era, the Roman position on these Christians was that they were a sect of Judaism, so they were allowed to function. But it was illegal for the Jews to try to convert Romans. They could convert Greeks, but they were not to convert Romans. This is going to play a part a little bit later in the chapter, possibly, uh, at the hearing that we see. So in verse 5, Silas and Timothy join him. Uh, Paul has sent them on some other journeys. They had joined him at Athens. He sent them back uh, on uh, uh, some other ministry to other places, and he's waiting for them. When they get there, verse 5 says, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. Evidently, he stopped his tent-making work. Whether that means Paul, uh, Timothy and Silas picked up the tent-making and brought in the income uh, for a time, uh, it doesn't exactly say there, but it, it's some interesting shift in the responsibilities has occurred within the apostolic team. But Paul is continuing to solemnly testify to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, the king that they're waiting for from Old Testament times, the one prophesied in the Psalms and the prophets. Paul standing up in the synagogue and saying, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And they put up with that for a while. It seems like they put up with it maybe a little longer than they did at other places. At Thessalonica, he only did that three weeks and they ran him out of town. In verse 6, though, the, the resistance arises. They resisted. They resisted so much that they blasphemed. They are blaspheming Paul because of what he's saying. They believe he is blaspheming God by saying that a man, Jesus, was the Christ. And as we become familiar with Paul's pattern, he did something that he has done before. He will do it again. He shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. In other places, he shook the dust off his feet, a symbol of, I'm done with you. In this case, he shook off his garments, get the dust from the synagogue off of his garments, I'm done with you, I'm turning now to the Gentiles. This was uh, also part of his strategy. From now on, he said, I will go to the Gentiles. Your blood is on your hands. I'm clean. I have fulfilled my responsibility before God to bring you the gospel. Your resistance is causing me to back off, and I turn and I give it to the Gentiles. And, of course, in many cities, the Gentiles rejoiced to receive it. 
received it widely. So he left there, the synagogue, in verse 7, and went to the house of one named Titus Justus. Titus Justus. By the way, uh, the fact that the city of Corinth was rebuilt as a Roman city and was a Roman capital is evident just by the Roman names in the church at Corinth and in this account. So many Roman names uh, show up in the Corinthian epistles and in here. <coughs> so he went to another man's house, a man who was a worshiper of God. This man is a Roman who had become a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. How convenient. Maybe he bought that house on purpose because he wanted to be next to it. Maybe it was a coincidence, and over time he was influenced by the worship that was going on next door. I don't know how that worked, but it's interesting that his house is next to the synagogue. In verse 8, Crispus, which is another Roman name, Jew, a Jewish man with a Roman name, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. <laughs> Praise God. Amen. Love to hear it when an Israelite comes to Christ. It's a delight. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So here are people in the synagogue who are following Paul. They're believing the gospel. And, and this is a flashback before he had you know, been kicked out. And they're being baptized. I have often wondered whether they went down to the seashore to be baptized or whether they went into the town, into the fountain uh, to be baptized. Uh, somebody can figure this out sometime. That, that there was one pool where this fountain came in. It held 520 cubic yards of water. You can do the math and figure that out yourself. I figure that it's enough to cover at least a football field a foot deep. If I'm wrong, I apologize, but you can do the math. Baptized. Where they were baptized, I don't know, but it certainly was a public setting. The Lord now, in verse 9, speaks to Paul in a vision by night. Now remember, he has just been uh, rejected by the Jews. He's just been kicked out of the synagogue with the blasphemy and the violent reaction there. At this point in, my, in Paul's mind, he's, he's been stoned. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been run out of town and run out of town and run out. He's been chased from one town to the next by the people from the last town to get run out of the next town. And at this point in time, Paul may just have on his mind a wonder, okay, what's next? Now what? What's going to happen this time? And, and I, I don't... I don't, want to be, I don't want to in any way cast any doubt on our estimation of Paul's character, but the man was human. Wouldn't you be wondering? Okay, how, what, are they going to come and mob in, during the night and drag me out and beat me again? And I think for whatever reassurance God wanted to give to Paul, the Lord came and spoke to Paul in verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, perhaps because he was. But go on speaking and do not be silent. I'm glad he didn't end there because at this point, Paul still might get a beating. But he goes on. He said, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. 
And then the words that every church planter would love to hear, for I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. You have had fruit already in the synagogue, and your work is just getting started. That had to be a wonderful reassurance to Paul. Number one, that he was not going to be beaten. Not that he wasn't willing to lay down his life for the gospel. He was. But there was going to be no holding back. He was going to be able to dig into the ministry and not have any fear in that regard. And so he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. As far as we know up to this point, this is the longest that he has stayed in any city to preach. The only place he will stay longer that we know of was Ephesus later when he would go there to the city of Ephesus. He's teaching the word of God among them. And we have very little other information about the fruit of the ministry, about Gentiles getting saved, about people getting saved. But one of the things I want to remind you of, do we still have pictures up here? Let me just go through a couple more. Again, the picture of the, the mountain, and you can see, just see the remains of the old temple and fortress at the top of the mountain. And then someone made a model of, of how a Roman city would have looked in the first century. Um, as Paul walked through those streets, as he ministered there, as he shared the gospel, he was meeting people from all over the Roman world. There were sailors speaking multitudes of languages. There were merchants plying their trade. There would have been wealthy businessmen on the street. There would have been important politicians in the area. Paul desired to reach the major population centers of the Roman Empire. And Corinth was one of the most important places he could have reached. We're going to see something over in Ephesus when we get there. Paul spent time in the city of Ephesus, and by reaching Ephesus, he reached a whole region. He reached an entire province. Paul went to the population centers and let the churches that he established there reach their Jerusalem. He shared that responsibility. He got them started, and he moved on to another place, and he let them reach their Jerusalem and their Judea and their Samaria. And Paul is going to do that here at Corinth as well. We don't know how long Paul was in town before some trouble was stirred up, but in verse 12 we begin to read about it. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Now, Gallio, we know from history, uh, is, uh, it was a Roman uh, official designated to be in charge there. He had a brother who was a famous Greek philosopher whose name was Seneca, who was the tutor of Nero. This was a man who lived in history. We have his name. This confirms for us pretty much the time frame of Paul's visit to Corinth. It was probably around 59 to 60, 61 A.D. The Jews rose up and brought an accusation against him, and it says they brought him before the judgment seat. That means that um, 
They grabbed him. They got him. They brought him. They have physically apprehended Paul and brought him to the officials. Now, the Bema seat was in the open market area. In ancient Corinth, in the Greek era, the open marketplace of the Greek city of Corinth covered more than five football fields. That's just the open market area. That's amazing. When the Romans rebuilt the city, they made the market area somewhat smaller than that. I don't know how big it was. But in that market area, there was a place where the officials would hold public hearings. And there was a raised stone. And if you go on the Internet, you can find pictures of the Bema seat at Corinth. It's still there. They have uncovered it archaeologically. And sometimes the official would be standing on the Bema seat, and sometimes the defendant would be on the Bema seat to state his case. And so Paul is taken down to the public uh, market area, to the public square, and he's put on a hearing here, and the accusation is brought in verse 13. This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, the text does not tell us which law or what law. There's two possibilities. These Jews may have been trying to get Paul convicted by a Roman official because he was trying to convert Roman citizens to the gospel. In that case, in, since the Jews were restricted from trying to convert Romans, they're trying to accuse Paul of breaking that law. For some reason, Gallio dismissed the case, so they either didn't have the evidence or that wasn't what they were trying to do. The other possibility is that they were bringing Paul and they were accusing Paul before the Roman official of, of preaching against the Mosaic law, in which case Gallio dismissed the case because he didn't care what they did with their religious stuff. Well, one way or another, Gallio is going to dismiss the case, verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. Which is how most Roman officials felt about the Jewish populations of their cities. But if there are questions about words and names, and your own law, look after it yourselves. So that obviously is indicating that some element of the Mosaic law was probably in view. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. So he basically writes it off as something he doesn't want to bother with, which was good for Paul. And verse 16, he drove them away from the judgment seat. The word judgment there is bema, B-E-M-A, bema seat, uh, in the New Testament. Paul uses that judgment seat later to talk about our accountability before God. You're familiar with that word. Verse 17, they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Now, before we talk about the beating, look back at verse 8. Crispus is the leader of the synagogue. He believed in the Lord with all his house. By verse 17, they've gotten rid of Crispus, or Crispus resigned as the leader of the synagogue, one way or the other. I'm, I'm sure that was, uh, 
I'm sure that was an interesting discussion when Crispus came to the Jewish leaders. He said, well, now I've decided to follow Christ. You're out of there. So by verse 17, they have another leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes. Uh, that's not a, an Old Testament Jewish name, by the way. That's a Greek name. And they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. So they openly dragged this man into the streets, and in front of the Roman official, they start beating this guy in public. And Gallio, that's their business. That's their business. How'd you like to go back and live in the Roman Empire? Not so much fun. Gallio or Sosthenes, uh, is, it's very interesting that they're now beating Sosthenes. The Jews are beating Sosthenes, their own leader of their own synagogue. Perhaps he has been giving some inclination of following Paul, but it doesn't actually say that. We don't know how long these events took place uh, as far as the span of time between the, the, these beatings and Paul coming and, and how close to the end of his visit they were. Because by verse 18, we're already jumped to the end of his visit. We really are told almost nothing about the founding of the church. We've, we've met a couple of the people. We found out it started in the synagogue, uh, and then it moved out of the synagogue like Paul often did. But I want you to keep in mind, as we go on through the New Testament, and as you, from time to time, pick up the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and read it, you read about a church that struggles. We call it the problem church of the New Testament. They were people who had been saved out of a godless, fleshly, idolatrous, wicked, debauched, drunken world. And they were trying to figure out what it meant to live for Christ. Let's have some mercy. I'm not condoning how long it might have taken some of them to learn, but let's not judge. Let's give people grace to grow and learn. My friends, the more I read about the Greek culture, the Roman culture of the New Testament era, the more I see today how incredibly similar our world is. There are very few vices of the Greeks and the Romans that we have not brought back and multiplied in our culture. Very few. It is no wonder that Paul feared going into one of the most important commercial trading cities of the Greek and Roman world. But it's also no wonder that he wanted to go there because if he went there and won people to Christ, they were going to go all over the Roman Empire. Any of you that have been involved or are familiar with any campus ministries, if you have an opportunity to win people to Christ on the college campus, on today's college campus, you have people from all over the world. When we were in, <clears throat> back in New York State, we had a ministry to a small college Near us, they had about 15,000 people. There were 52 countries represented in the student body of that small university. 
Today we live in a world that is highly commercial. People travel all over. Some of you get on airplanes. Some of you travel different places for vacations. God is still in the business of using people who move about to spread the gospel. You, you are never anywhere by accident. Never. You're never sitting next to a person by accident on a plane or a train or a bus or in a classroom or in the doctor's office. You're never accidentally standing next to someone in a waiting line. God has his plan for spreading the gospel. We are, we are that city which God has reached and planted a church. And his desire for us is that we would spread the gospel around us for his name's sake. Amen? Amen. Let us be those who are willing to take the gospel wherever God puts us. And may his grace help us to be bold with those opportunities that he's going to give us. Let's stand and we will pray.